This is Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore presentation of the Bradcast that was originally recorded on April 7th, 2022. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. Think something good happened in Congress. But I know that can't be right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Uh, I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, a little bit. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites, most of them, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, after the terrible, horrible, tragic news that unexpectedly swept over yesterday's broadcast, well, we've got some slightly brighter uh, and in some cases much brighter news today for you. For uh, a change, that's nice. Yeah, right. Well, at least until we get to the Green News Report, but I won't hold that against you, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Not completely your fault. Anyway, as you heard at the top of the show, uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson in a 53 to 47 vote on Thursday afternoon following her nomination by President Joe Biden has now been confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the first black female justice to sit on the highest court in the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, where she will officially take her seat the one being vacated by Justice Stephen Breyer at the end of the court's current term in July. Here was Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer marking the historic moment. This is one of the great moments of American history. At the time of our Constitution's ratification, in most states you had to be a white, male, Protestant landowner to be considered part of American society. So from the get-go, Generations of Americans have sought to establish the United States as a full democracy. We fought a bloody civil war to end slavery. Women, women organized and reached for the ballot. The civil rights movement brought an end to the vicious segregation of the mid-20th century. 
And today, we are taking a giant, bold, and important step on the well-trodden path to fulfilling our country's founding promise. This is a great moment for Judge Jackson, but it is even great, a greater moment for America as we rise to a more perfect union. Senator Chuck Schumer getting a little teary there. Yeah, was he? I believe he was. Uh, we would talk about that more as historic as it is, but it is not the only good piece of news of good news that we've got for you today. Not by a long shot. This afternoon, our friend and well-respected longtime constitutional law expert John Bonifaz, president of freespeechforpeople.org, let me know that the group has just filed, on behalf of a group of Arizona voters, new challenges to the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Arizona State Rep. Mark Fincham, who is running for Arizona Secretary of State with Donald Trump's endorsement challenged the eligibility of uh, those three men to appear at all on the 2022 ballot, charging that they are ineligible to hold office based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that disallows officials from holding office who have sworn an oath to support the Constitution but subsequently, quote, engage in insurrection or rebellion against the same or have given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Boniface says the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment must be followed, he insisted. I would go into more detail on that, but that will have to wait for another day because we've still got more good news today before I get to my guest momentarily. But the uh, the challenge to the ballot eligibility of those three far-right Arizona insurrectionist Republicans are now added to similar challenges already filed by voters with uh, free speech for people's help and uh, now being adjudicated against insurrectionist Congress members Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina and Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia. By the way, when I asked Boniface today if I should expect any more such filings this year, he told me only no comment. <laughs> In any event, if any of those are successful, it could make it very difficult for one Donald J. Trump to appear on the ballot in those key swing states, Arizona, North Carolina and Georgia in 2024. If he decides to run for president again, presuming he is not in jail by then. And speaking of which, yes, that's not all. Uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James asked a New York court on Thursday to hold former President Donald Trump in civil contempt for allegedly failing to comply with a court order that he turn over certain documents for her investigation. According to CNN, State Judge Arthur Engeron in February had ordered Trump to, quote, comply in full with the Attorney General's subpoena seeking documents and information. Engeron also ruled that Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Ivanka Trump should comply with the attorney general's subpoenas for testimony, but the Trumps are appealing that decision. The documents, on the other hand, are apparently not part of that appeal and should have been turned over. But guess what? In a mo uh, motion filed Thursday, the AG's office said that, the tr that uh, Trump, quote, did not comply at all with the subpoena, for documents. Well, how unlike him. 
He's usually such a champion of the rule of law and <laughs> law and order and all of that stuff. At least he's told us as much. Uh, and also that his attorneys uh, said that he would not produce, quote, any documents in response to the subpoena because his attorneys believe that if the documents exist, the Trump organization would have them. And the attorney general's office, quote, will just have to wait until the Trump organization completes its production to get them. What the hell? This that that is not how this works at all. <laughs> That's not a thing. According to the new filings, uh, James's office had agreed already to extend an early March deadline for the documents until March 31. But rather than produce the documents that day, Trump presented 16 objections to the subpoena's demands. So he waited till the day they were due to then present new objections. Again, not how this works at all. James argued on Thursday that Trump's attorney's response amounted to, quote, more delay and obfuscation. Yeah, that sounds like him saying that his objections came too late. The filing states, quote, Mr. Trump should now be held in civil contempt and fined in an amount sufficient to coerce his compliance with the court's order and compensate the office of the attorney general for its fees and costs associated with this motion. James is asking the court to impose a fine of $10,000 per day or any other amount that the court deems, quote, sufficient to coerce his compliance with the court's February 2022 order. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be a lot more than $10,000 a day, frankly. That is couch cushion change for uh, this grifter with tens of millions in his super PAC from his grifted donors that he'll he'll be more than happy to use if he's forced to. In any event, James has said in previous filings in this case that uh, her office found multiple, quote, misleading or fraudulent misstatements and omissions in the Trump organization's financial statements, which were provided to lenders and insurers, among others, as part of its investigation. Again, this is the civil case. Uh, regarding Trump and his family and his organization's apparent years of financial fraud, nobody will go to jail from this case, most likely, even if James is successful in prosecuting it. Though the New York AG has uh, previously shut down Trump's fraudulent charity entirely. She shut down his fraudulent Trump University and fined uh, Trump $25 million in that case. And yes, she has moved to shut down even more powerful organizations than the Trump Organization, for example, the NRA. So while uh, no Trumps are going to end up in jail from this case, it could be a huge blow to the family business, including potentially liquidating it if they can prove in court that the fraud was egregious enough. And I'm sure it was. Otherwise, Trump would not be fighting so hard to protect those documents and to prevent himself and his daughter, Ivanka, and his ne'er-do-well son, Don Jr., from having to sit down for a deposition under oath. Now, obviously, this case is very much alive at the state attorney general's office in New York, even as the criminal case for much of the same tax, bank and insurance fraud by the uh, Trumps at the uh, Manhattan DA's office, that criminal case, while still theoretically ongoing, according to the new uh, district attorney, Alvin Bragg, it has been sort of limping along at best after Bragg, uh, uh, upon taking office at the beginning of the year, decided to not indict Donald Trump, at least not yet, 
on criminal charges. That, you'll recall, led the two longtime prosecutors on that case to resign in apparent disgust recently. But today, Bragg said, following the news out of the AG's office, that his probe is, quote, very much ongoing, and as stated previously, he notes that things could change in that case with additional evidence, which, by the way, might come from depositions and documents that the AG is trying to get in the civil case. Got it? But for today, for the moment, we will turn our hopes elsewhere for jail time for Donald Trump. And for today, that place would be the U.S. Justice Department and its Attorney General, Merrick Garland, who you will recall said back in January of this year. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. Okay, Mr. Attorney General, I'm still taking you at your word, though I know a lot of people are questioning that word. I had uh, I had dinner with a family member the other night who who does not follow politics that closely, but she was really mad at Attorney General Merrick Garland for not taking any action to hold Trump and his hench his hench people accountable after the uh, January 6th insurrection, as I realize a lot of folks are on the left and maybe Maybe for good reason. On the other hand, maybe not for good reason. Our friend Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel has been on this show a number of times in recent months as sort of a lonely voice saying, pay attention. Merrick Garland and the DOJ are doing exactly what they should be doing in the January 6th investigation if they were going to work their way up toward Donald Trump and those in his top orbit. Now, Marcy reads virtually every pleading filed by the DOJ in hundreds of cases that they are bringing against these uh, these low level insurrectionists or lower level, probably more than any journalist in the nation. And she has told us repeatedly that Garland's probe is proceeding exactly as it would if he was eventually planning to gun for Trump. That doesn't mean he will bring an indictment, but it's a very different take from those who are furious at Garland for not having taken action already. But as she has been a lonely voice on this, I thought it might be nice to get another take from someone who knows the federal prosecution beat very well as a longtime federal prosecutor. And yes, that will be next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast.
Well, uh, Merrick Garland is certainly taking a slow ride. Some say he is taking it far too easy. Others say he's doing exactly what he should be doing to bring accountability to Donald Trump and his criminal gang. Who has it right? Well, let's talk about it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Writing at the Washington Post this week, conservative if anti-Trump columnist, Jennifer Rubin argued U.S. District Judge David Carter might have pushed the Justice Department to pick up the pace of its January 6 investigation or at least signal to the public the investigation has not stalled out. Just days after Carter issued an opinion that we covered last week, arguing that former President Donald Trump and his attorneys, John, uh, like John Eastman, likely committed crimes in their effort to upend the certification of electoral votes. Officials familiar with the Justice Department investigation gave the media more insight into its, well, clearly continuing criminal probe on the events surrounding the insurrection. The Washington Post reported the criminal investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol has expanded to examine the preparations for the rally that preceded the riot as the Justice Department aims to determine the uh, to determine the full extent of any conspiracy to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden's election victory. Moreover, quote, they write a federal grand jury in Washington has issued subpoena requests to some officials in former President Donald Trump's orbit who has assisted in planning, funding, and executing the January 6th rally. The New York Times added this detail, quote, the investigation now encompasses the possible involvement of other government officials in Mr. Trump's attempts to obstruct the certification of President Biden's Electoral College victory and the push by some Trump allies to promote slates of fake electors. Rubin observes that it's not every day that the Justice Department, particularly one under the exceptionally cautious and deliberate Attorney General Merrick Garland's direction, reveals who or what it is investigating. Is it a coincidence, she asks, that these new updates surfaced shortly after Judge Carter laid out a compelling case that there is no obvious barrier to prosecuting Donald Trump? In doing so, Carter effectively said there is no good reason not to at least investigate Trump for serious felonies. And the Justice Department essentially responded by saying, well, yes, we really are on the case. At least that's how Rubin sees it. She says Garland has come under significant criticism from those who worry he thinks that he could not get a conviction or that there is some constitutional impediment to prosecution. Some argue he is moving so slowly he risks allowing a possible GOP congressional majority to wreak havoc with the inquiry. The Justice Department, in affirming that it is already proceeding to investigate those not physically present at the Capitol as it was attacked, might be hoping to allay those fears. Late last year, Randall Eliason, a former federal prosecutor and fairly regular guest on this very program, called out some of those charging that Garland and the DOJ were not moving fast enough or even at all to prosecute not only those in Trump's orbit, but especially Trump himself. He cites Ely Mistal of The Nation, who accused Garland of, quote, cowardice. 
Eliasson noted last year, journalist Steve Beschloss argued that if Garland can't, quote, step up and pursue these cases, quote, then President Biden should find an attorney general who can, unquote. On this program, we've spoken with constitutional and criminal law experts like our friend John Bonifaz from Free Speech for People, who've gone so far as to call for Merrick Garland to step down for failing to step up to the challenge of prosecuting Donald Trump, including for the many apparent cases of obstruction of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. There's been plenty of criticism of Garland for either moving too slowly or in some cases seemingly not moving at all against Trump and his clan. One notable exception to this line of thinking over the past year has been another friend of ours. That's Marcy Wheeler, the independent investigative journalist and founder of the Empty Wheel blog. She's joined us on this show several times uh, in recent months to argue that, in fact, despite all the critics, Garland is proceeding up the legal food chain and indeed working his way toward Trump. While she can't promise that it will end in an indictment, much less conviction of the disgraced former president, Marcy has read just about every dang court filing submitted by the DOJ and argues that those filings reveal an unmistakable case that, in fact, the DOJ is working their way toward Donald Trump, at least in the January 6th matter. Marcy, who is no apologist for the U.S. government or for Democrats over the years, she's been a bit of an outlier over the past year with that line of thinking. And uh, she's often been critical of those who have been critical of Garland because they, she argues, have not kept up with the DOJ's pleadings in hundreds of cases right now being brought against January 6th defendants. But back to Eliasson, who wrote again, Late last week at Washington Post, uh, Washington Post, quote, for months, critics of the Justice Department's investigation into the events of January 6, 2021, have complained that prosecutors appeared to be focusing only on the rioters at the Capitol and not on higher level targets. Then this past week, we learned that over the past two months, prosecutors have issued subpoenas to a number of individuals involved in planning, funding and executing the Save America rally. That was the one that was held outside the White House on January 6th before the attack on the Capitol, including people close to then President Donald Trump. The response from the critics has been a mixture of professed relief that something is finally happening and continued complaints that the entire process is still moving too slowly. Well, it sure does feel like that at times, especially to those not following this very closely, who seem to think Garland has simply chosen to not bring charges at all against the former and obviously, at least in my opinion, countless criminal acts by the former president. Eliasson writes, I think these critics continue to have it wrong. Oh, do they, Mr. Eliasson? He goes on, in fact, to argue, quote, that the progress has been impressively fast. Fast? Really? We're more than a full year past the worst attack on our nation's capital and its constitution since the Civil War. How can you call that fast, Mr. Eliasson? Well, 
Let's ask him. Randall D. Eliasson is a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School. He's a writer and commentator on corporate and white-collar criminal law, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the public corruption, government, and government fraud section, and, yes, a frequent contributor to the Washington Post on issues of federal criminal law. Oh, Mr. Eliasson, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, thank you. Nice to be back, and thank you for the nice, even-handed setup. Well, as you can see, <laughs> you're in trouble. You've got some explaining to do, sir. Uh, but but first, uh, new reporting, uh, as noted, finds there's a new federal grand jury uh, that has now recently been impaneled by the DOJ to investigate January 6th. What does that tell us alone from the information that's come out, uh, suggesting that the case is now casting a very wide net around what could be as the New York Times reports today, hundreds of folks who not only organized the rally, but the entire scheme to block the peaceful transfer of power by folks uh, in what the papers are describing as Trump's orbit. So I'd like to push back a little bit on the, the narrative, the way it's kind of framed in your introduction, because mm-hmm. I think actually it's not really the case that the investigation is just now expanding mm-hmm. for the first time. It's certainly not the case that DOJ is responding to Judge Carter's opinion or suddenly felt pressured to do all of these things. I think this has been the plan from day one. And in fact, Merrick Garland said at his confirmation hearing that the way to investigate January 6th is you start with the people on the ground Mm -hmm. and you work your way up. And that's kind of the classic model for any big, complicated investigation like this. You start with the low-level people, you prosecute them, convict them, get information from them, and work your way up. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. So it started off with, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of prosecutions of low-level rioters. By the way, in terms of being impressively fast, mm-hmm. when was the last investigation that had 800 people <laughs> indicted in the first year? Yeah, um, you're right. a huge, huge undertaking. Yep. Okay? And if you're going to do it properly, the way you do it is you start at the ground level and work your way up the food chain. That's the classic investigative procedure. So now we're starting to see, in recent months... Mm-hmm the indictments of the Proud Boys, the indictments of the Oath Keepers, and the information now is starting to come out about other people who weren't rioters, but who were involved in planning, organizing, things like that, Mm -hmm. receiving subpoenas and things like that. But I I don't think that's new. That's been the plan, the investigative plan all along. And it's not DOJ now suddenly saying, oh yeah, we're doing this and releasing this information. This isn't coming from DOJ. This is coming from leaks from people who've received the subpoenas. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not like Garland or you know, DOJ responding to Judge Carter saying, no, look, we're doing something, we're doing something. See, here's these subpoenas we've issued. They don't operate that way. Mm. But people who get the subpoenas are free to leak it. Right. And we're starting to now to finally see some of that happening. Um, the word's getting out that, hey, they got these subpoenas looking at all these higher-level people. So this has been the plan all along. It takes a long time. Um, so the... You know, I, I mean... Go ahead. Well, well, no, I was going to say, so the, the timing now of these grand juries and these subpoenas, uh, of course, the, the grand juries and the subpoenas, uh, I mean, these these could have been convened for months without us knowing about it, uh, I yeah. guess, until it leaks out. But otherwise, beyond that, as we're, uh, well, we're now beyond the, the, you know, the first year since January 6th. So you're suggesting that the timing at this point of these grand juries and, and word leaking out about the subpoenas is about what you would expect in in a case of this size? Yep, exactly. I mean, it's not... I mean, the grand jury's been working continuously, almost since the riot happened. Uh And 
so that's not a new development. And the, you know, information, like we said, is starting to come in now about the focus on higher-level people, but I think that's always been the plan. It's just now we're starting to hear more about it because the investigation is gradually progressing to that stage. But if you think about, I like to use the example of Enron, for example, mm-hmm. if people remember that, yeah. uh, the, the huge corporate collapse. It was four years from the time of the collapse to when they were able to bring the CEOs to trial. Mm-hmm. And that was child's play compared to this case. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, there are a lot more. Watergate took more than two years right. from the time of the burglary until the time Nixon resigned. Mm-hmm. They just indicted a guy in Illinois, the former Speaker of the House, State House in Illinois, Madigan, mm-hmm. on RICO charges, mm-hmm. a big corruption case. Investigation took four years just for one guy and in the one corruption case. So it's just a fact of life that the way these cases proceed involving prosecuting lower-level people, working with their defense lawyers, working with the judges, working with court calendars, getting the case done, getting their information, moving on to the next case, it's just a slow process. But if you're going to do it right, you can't take shortcuts. And the critics, as you mentioned, there's this huge debate you know, on Twitter and elsewhere between yeah. different people about whether Garland's doing nothing at all or whether this is just what we should expect. And I agree with Marcy Wheeler here that I think this is exactly what we should expect. The signs are this is, in fact, what's happening. And the alternative mm-hmm. is you rush, you put together a case without doing it properly just to try to bring some charges, and you lose, right? You don't want to bring a half-baked case in something that's this significant or this important if you're going to bring a case at all. So it would, you've got to be sure to do it properly. So it would be, in other words, it would be easy. You wrote that uh, you've seen some lawyers suggest that the Justice Department could now simply take Judge David Carter's ruling to a grand jury and get an indictment. It's easy to yeah. get an indictment. They could probably indict him, uh, Trump, and, and all sorts of uh, people in his orbit on all sorts of things. But that is a different matter than actually getting a conviction, correct? Yes, exactly. And, and it's, it's far lower. I mean, getting an indictment, first of all, the standard is only probable cause. Uh-huh. The, jury, the grand jury only has to find probable cause. It doesn't have to be unanimous. Um, and they're only hearing the government side of the case for the most part. Mm-hmm. So that's a walk in the park compared to proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt at trial to a unanimous jury. Mm-hmm. So you can't indict someone, according to the DOJ policy, you can't indict someone just because you can prove probable cause. You only indict someone when you're convinced that you've got admissible evidence that at a contested trial with defense counsel where that evidence is all going to be challenged, mm-hmm. you can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury. That's now, a far, far higher standard. So the fact that yeah. Judge Carter made this finding doesn't come anywhere close to getting you there. Uh, and again, uh, just his finding was that Trump and uh, his attorney Eastman most likely, I think was the word he used, most likely, more likely than not, more likely, more likely than, than not, than yeah, com- committed essentially uh, multiple federal felonies. Now, there was some conventional wisdom that the House January 6th committee, Randall, was was likely working in some fashion with the uh, with the DOJ, at least to avoid sort of stepping on uh, any uh, uh, probe by the uh, by the department uh, and most likely sharing information and so forth. But members of that committee recently seem to be sending a very clear signal through their remarks at a recent hearing that they wanted the Department of Justice to take more action more quickly, at least as I heard them. I don't know if you got to hear some of those thoughts. Uh, Any response to that? Yeah, I think there have been some 
some critics, you know, and they're politicians. Again, they're impatient like their constituents. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody's got a different role here, right? I mean, and Garland's role is to not be swayed by kind of political pressures, but to do to take the case wherever the facts and the uh, the facts and the law lead them, as he said, which mm-hmm. to me appears to be exactly what he's doing. And the suggestions, frankly, you know, from uh, some of the critics that Biden should you know, replace him or fire him or lean on him to do something. I mean, that's exactly what everybody was outraged about when Trump and Barr were doing it, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That kind of politicization of the Justice Department, that the idea that Biden should lean on Garland or fire him because he's not moving fast enough is the exact opposite of what we want and the exact opposite of what Biden and Garland promised to do to get away from the Trump era where Bill Barr was running around and doing favors for Trump you know, cronies and uh, interfering in the administration of justice and politicizing the Justice Department. That is the last thing we want. So I think Biden's playing this smart, letting Garland do his job and knowing Garland a little bit, knowing DOJ and the way these cases work. It's just not surprising to me that it's taking this long. And frankly, the critics, the criticism is based on really nothing more than just impatience. And I mean, there are no facts. There are no facts that the critics are basing their conclusions on, just the claim, well, it hasn't yeah. happened yet. Well, you know, I, well, okay. What's your timeline? How fast should it have happened? How can you tell from the outside without seeing the, you know, terabytes of evidence and the thousands of subpoenas and the hundreds of defendants? I mean, again, um, it's just impatience. Well, and I hear you, and I want to speak to that and the timeline and and the need that many people, you know, sort of have to want to rush this. But before we leave this one point on the January sixth committee, yeah, they are politicians. Yes, they are playing to the public. I I tend to. Uh, you know, put my uh, faith in folks like you and and Marcy, who know much more about this than I do. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm convinced he's moving along at the proper speed. But then I see the uh, January 6th committee making these remarks. Folks who I would think presumably at least have some understanding of what the DOJ is or isn't doing just so they can, you know, deconflict their own uh, investigation so they don't step on each other's toes. And these people who theoretically have some sense of what DOJ is doing seem to be suggesting that whatever DOJ is doing is not enough or is not fast enough. That that's not uh, I should not be concerned by that. Well, I wouldn't assume that they really know that much more about what DOJ is doing other than what's public, Mm. other than what everybody knows. I mean, DOJ is not briefing members of Congress on their investigation for two reasons. First, grand jury secrecy, they're just not allowed to share that information. Mm -hmm. And second, they don't want it leaking. As soon as they tell the politicians something is happening, it's going to be, they're going to run up to CNN cameras on Capitol Hill and start sharing all this information. So I don't don't think we should assume that that Mm. members of the committee have any kind of, I mean, they know more than we do because, of, you're right, they're coordinating and sharing information. I'm sure that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's primarily going to be a one-way flow. Uh-huh. You know, the Capitol Hill Committee can share information with DOJ, but DOJ is not coming in briefing members of Congress on, you know, the progress they're making in the case. Got so, it. So we're going to, uh, hey, we'd like to invite Ivanka Trump uh, for an interview on this topic. You all have any problem with that? DOJ says, no, do whatever you want. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and certainly if they were going to take any steps like immunizing witnesses, things like that, I right. mean, they would definitely coordinate that with DOJ, first of all. Uh-huh. But um, they're not getting briefed by DOJ on what's happening on the criminal side. So I think a lot of their frustration is based on what it, the, the same things mm-hmm. that it's based on, you know, by members of the public. It's just feeling like this is taking a long time. And yeah, it does. Um, but people who have experience with 
uh, you know, large investigations like this, I think, are not terribly surprised. And now, then there's, there's never been one this big, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's the largest uh, investigation in, in DOJ history, as I understand it. Yeah. When uh, former uh, Trump aide Steve Bannon was referred to the uh, department by Congress for contempt after he failed to respond to lawful subpoenas issued by the uh, January 6th committee, he was indicted after several weeks, as I recall. It has now yeah. been months since Trump's then chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was also referred to the uh, Department for Contempt. But there has been no indictment. Uh, yeah. uh, Marcy Wheeler has some thoughts on that. But first, let me get your thoughts on it. Any idea well, as to great, why? Yeah, it's a great example. I'm glad you brought that up. So my, when people bring up the Meadows thing, my answer is, OK, we don't know why. Right. I don't know why. You don't know why. Mm -hmm. So we can assume two things. We can assume that Meadows hasn't been indicted because Garland's incompetent, doesn't care, is afraid, whenever, for all these things the critics want to say. They're willing to just let him get by because they're too timid to indict him. You mm -hmm. can assume that. Or you can assume that there is some kind of investigative, legal, tactical reason for that delay. And I choose the latter, <laughs> based okay. on what I'm seeing, right? Instead of assuming the worst and saying, based on nothing other than inaction, uh -huh. that we're going to assume the worst that that DOJ is incompetent, don't doesn't care, whatever. I'm I'm my assumption is there's something going on with Meadows. Either they're possibly squeezing him for cooperation in a larger case. He's uh -huh. facing some more significant charges. There's negotiations with his lawyer going on because that contempt of Congress charge, although it's important, is relatively nickel and dime. It's a one-year misdemeanor right. compared to charges he could be facing if he's implicated in the larger kind of conspiracy, obstruction. You know, these are 20-year felonies. Right. Um, and if there's so there might be some kind of legal maneuvering going on with him and his lawyer to see. So my assumption is the reason that that contempt of Congress case hasn't been indicted is for some kind of legal or investigative reason like that. Um, As opposed because to... Of yeah, as opposed to just they don't care or they're just ignoring, or they just yeah. don't think that what he did was criminal. Whereas we know that he, what he did do is criminal, or in that they char they did charge Steve Bannon for that same thing. So yep. uh, although yeah, I mean, yeah. in fairness, Meadows is a little harder case than Bannon because at least Meadows was in the White House at the time. Right. So when he claims executive privilege, at least he's kind of on the playing field. <laughs> Bannon had not been in the White House for three years. Right. So. That, uh, from that aspect, Bannon was an easier case. And, but, and Marcy, uh, as I understand it, Marcy Wheeler uh, sort of suggests, uh, if I understand what the case she's made here, is that you know because charges for uh, contempt against uh, uh, Meadows would, in fact, uh, sort of open up all of the DOJ files, essentially against any other probe that they may be carrying out that involves Meadows for larger charges like sedition or obstruction or whatever that is, wouldn't he then be able to request those documents as part of discovery from DOJ if they charged him on the sort of small potatoes charge of uh, of contempt? Yeah, that's, I think that's hard to say. I mean, you should be able to confine... I mean, that would be a fight. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, DOJ would have a pretty good argument, I think, that a lot of that stuff is irrelevant because okay. the contempt charge is, is pretty narrow, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, you got the subpoena, you didn't show up. <laughs> okay. And whatever else we're investigating you for really doesn't matter. He wouldn't have to turn, so, they wouldn't have to turn those documents over to him. I don't think necessarily. I mean, again, maybe there'd be some kind of fight about discovery with mm -hmm. the judge, but I, I think DOJ might be able to keep keep a lot of that stuff secret still, but... Um, but in general, 
it's kind of a distraction. I mean, if you're, on DOJ's part, if you're really focusing on this much bigger and more significant conspiracy case, you know, taking the time to indict Meadows and then prosecute him for this contempt of Congress, it's mm-hmm. almost like a diversion at this point, right? Or It's not your mm-hmm. top priority. Gotcha. Um, you got a lot bigger fish to fry right now. And if there's some chance of persuading him to flip, cooperate, cut a deal with him, you want to keep that option open and not just start prosecuting him. Gotcha. Now, we we talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, sort of what's the rush here? It took Enron, you know, four years to bring criminal charges there. In a normal world, Randall Eliason, uh, you know, a a normal criminal investigation, other than, you know, sort of minding statutes of limitation and concerns about the loss of evidence or the memories of witnesses and so forth, speed would not necessarily be of essence, but at least the way I and, and, and many others, I suspect see it but you know in this case this is you know tied in fact with politics in a way that you really can't separate it now i know that you know the doj has a policy against bringing criminal charges or or even investigations too close to actual elections so as not to have those probes affect the elections itself or give the appearance that they're political. James Comey's pre-2016 announcement of Hillary Clinton's emails notwithstanding. But here we are already into the primary election season in which some of these potential suspects are running for office. And, of course, as soon as Donald Trump declares his intention to run in 2024, if he does, won't any investigation or indictment of him be seen as nothing more than a political attack on a rival? You know, so when you ask what's the rush, isn't that a rush to bring these indictments before he announces he's running and then... I don't even know how you'd bring an indictment after that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a unique factor in this case, right? And we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. The problem is, what's the alternative? So, A, you rush to hurry up and bring an indictment Mm -hmm. right away because you think think that's a concern if I wait too much longer. Um, And so you indict him with a half-baked case when you're not really ready, and he prevails at trial right, you know, or, or the case gets thrown out. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you lose because you brought the case before you were ready, and he beats the case, and then he emerges stronger than ever before, right? And if you want to talk about political consequences, that's like a disaster. Um, and or, or the alternative is you wait, you take the time to do it properly, and recognize that those political blows are going to come no matter when you, if they had the guy tomorrow, uh-huh. there's, everybody's still going to say, Biden, I mean, not everybody, but, you know, his supporters mm-hmm. are going to say it's Biden's DOJ trying to take out his main 2024 rival. It's yeah. all political. No matter if they, but Brad, if they do that tomorrow or next year, they're still going to say the same thing. It, so, <laughs> is, is, there, you know. is there a DOJ policy that would prevent, let's say, uh, Donald Trump declares in July that he's going to run in, in 2024, and uh, the DOJ finally has a full case they feel confident in, they feel good about, does Attorney General Randall Eliason bring a uh, indictments against an announced candidate for the presidency in August after uh, yeah. after that? Yeah, potentially. There, there's no policy against bringing cases against announced candidates. Mm-hmm. The, the policy is, and again, this is even written down. This is kind of a practice, so uh-huh. kind of a informal policy. Uh, they say like 60 days before an election, you don't 
bring new criminal cases or take major criminal investigative steps that might influence the election. Mm -hmm. But if you're a year out, a year and a half out, and somebody's just a candidate, that policy doesn't really apply. Mm -hmm. That being said, we do have to recognize this is a unique situation, right? I mean, this has never happened before. And again, no matter when they decide to move forward, if they decide to move forward, and of course there's no guarantee that they will, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I agree with Marcy there, too. (laughs) You know, the fact that they're doing the investigation properly and carefully doesn't automatically guarantee it's going to end in an indictment of Trump. But if they get to that point, there's going to be political blowback no matter when they do it. Um, And so I think their only option is to do what they're doing is do it properly, do it right, do it the way you would do any big investigation. And then if you've got to take those political lumps at some time, then you're going to just have to take them. Wow. Uh, yeah, boy, talk about high stakes. I, and by the way, if you wait too long, Randall, and, and Trump does run and wins, well, then he falls under the same absurd DOJ policy, at least in my opinion, that you can't charge a sitting president. Uh, right. You know, the one that seems to have prevented him from being charged in the first place under the Mueller probe. So uh, there's that as well. I've got just a, a minute or two here. Very quickly, I want to get uh, your two thoughts, uh, uh, thoughts on, on, on two sort of related stories. Uh, one, uh, any thoughts on the uh, Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, who apparently decided to not bring, uh, to not prosecute Donald Trump on tax, bank, and insurance fraud, his, uh, you know, as his predecessor had planned to do, uh, leading to the recent resignation of the two top prosecutors who had worked on that case against Trump for several years now. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, yeah, I remember I was on the show, I don't know, a year ago or so, whenever that case was first indicted. Yeah. And they indicted Weisselberg and the Trump organization. Yeah. And I was saying it looked to me like that was going to be it. Uh, the fact that they indicted the organization along with Weisselberg suggested there probably weren't more charges coming. And we agreed that I'd come back when we found out whether that was the case. So one of us could say, I told you so. so. <laughs> well, I, so here I am. Yeah, no, you were, you were right, but, uh, but that doesn't seem a fair one. I mean, those two guys, those two prosecutors worked on it for years. They really wanted to. They felt yep. they had a case here. I, yep, is I that know. unusual for uh, a, an attorney general like, or a, a district attorney in that case to come in and, and tell the well, they weren't career prosecute. Well, I guess they were yeah. to tell the prosecutors who had worked on the actual case. Sorry, not enough here. Take a walk. Um, well, it's unusual for them to like resign in protest. Although I think at least one of them was not really a career guy. He was brought in from right. a law firm, brought out of retirement to work on the case. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, that's the DA's job. They're the boss, right? They've mm-hmm. got to make the tough calls. It certainly looks a little funny in this case, if since the you know prior DA. Up Reportedly, anyway, was was ready to go forward, and then Bragg comes in and, and changes his yeah. mind. Um, <laughs> you know, but without knowing a whole lot more about his reasoning, uh-huh. um, it's hard to say too much more. Okay, uh, to me, anyway, it's hard to be uh, make a judgment one way or another without knowing a whole lot more about what they told him, what his reasoning was. Okay, you know, but it certainly looks a little funny. Questionable, yes, I know. And so, you know, that said, uh, Bragg has said that uh, they haven't actually closed the case. If there's more information that comes out, etc., they are still open to bringing charges and so forth. If that's the case, Randall Lison, we will bring you back 
and I will get to say I told you so. All right, right. Uh, last qu- last question here, and it's sort of a big one, but I uh, can't can't avoid this one. It, we recently learned uh, via the January sixth committee that uh, Ginny Thomas, the far right activist wife of far right activist Justice, in my opinion, Clarence Thomas, uh, was involved not only in the planning of the January sixth rallies, but she also attended one of the uh, uh, the the one at the ellipse on January sixth. But more disturbingly, she had dozens of relentless text messages uh, exchanged with then-Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, encouraging him to keep fighting, essentially, to steal the presidential election, as I see it. Now, many have called for Justice Thomas to recuse himself from cases involving the uh, 2020 election and January 6th. That seems obvious. It's apparently questionable whether he will do that, but it seems obvious. I don't think that goes nearly far enough. Your thoughts on what should be the response to what we have learned about the Thomases? So, I mean, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've heard. I mean, the Supreme Court justices don't actually have the uh, ethics code that applies to them. Correct. The way, that, right. way other federal judges do that sort of mandate recusal. So mm-hmm. it's really completely up to them. That's the first point. Yep. They just get to decide whether they want to do it or not. On the one hand, I think it's kind of a tricky area. I don't know that you want kind of a flat rule that judges have to disqualify themselves based on political activities of their spouses. If you're just kind of as a general proposition, right? They should be able, their spouses should be able to have their own life, their own activities, and we can presume that the judge's life and activities are not, you know, biased just because of that. Maybe. Um, I'm not sure I'm buying in yeah. on that, but okay. okay. All right, go but ahead. <laughs> now, if, if, if it's that, you know, the case that he, he was the sole dissenter on the case about whether uh, uh, the White House could turn over Trump's documents, mm-hmm. you know, that they was claiming executive privilege, and Biden said, no, it's fine, you can have them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thomas was the lone dissenter on that, and there's some suggestion that Ginny Thomas's emails might have been among those documents. Right, right. Text messages. Right. That seems pretty clear-cut. You, yep. know, you can't participate in a case like that if your wife's documents are part of what's at issue. Uh-huh. So that, if that were the case, then that clearly looks like a situation where he should have recused himself. And, you know, if the facts are something similar going forward, he should likewise recuse himself. I'm not sure I'm willing to say that he needs to recuse himself from anything involving January 6th at all, Mm. just because of his wife's political views. I'm not sure that's enough to get you to the standard where he can't participate. Um, But Mm. uh, if 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 it involves his wife or her records or things like that, then yes, absolutely. All right. Well, you're welcome to be wrong again, Randall Eliason. Uh, he is, of course, a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School, former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as the chief of the public corruption and government fraud section. You can find him at, of course, Washington Post, where he contributes, as well as his own blog, sidebarsblog.com, and on the Twitters at R.D. Eliason. I always look uh, forward to speaking to you uh, again, Uh, Randall, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Okay. Super late. Yes. Got to get to a break. (laughs) Desi Doyen and the Green News Report is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. 
Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. We'll be back soon. By the way, did uh, Randall Eliasson make you feel any better about uh, Merrick Garland going after Donald Trump? Slightly better, yeah. Only slightly. (laughs) All right, well, you're a tough customer. Uh, Let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. The facts are that oil majors testifying here today still returned billions of dollars to your shareholders in 2020 at the same time that you were laying off your workforce. Lawmakers blast big oil CEOs for using wartime profits to enrich investors. Today, we are proposing to take our sanctions a step further. We will make them broader and sharper so that they cut even deeper into the Russian economy. Europe moves to ban Russian coal. Plus, more destructive storms are causing more power outages and costing taxpayers more money. Thanks to climate change, all of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's troubling that you place profits over people and profits over our planet. Well, maybe Congressman, but you might have just given the anti-American oil companies their new tagline. Profits over people and profits over our planet. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I like it. Profits over our people and profits over our planet. I'm sure they'll adopt that right away. I think they, why wouldn't they? What do you have for us today? Well, in a House Energy and Commerce hearing on Wednesday... Frankly, given your profits... You could drop prices without even increasing production. Top executives from Big Oil defended their decisions to return cash to shareholders rather than increase production or lower wholesale prices as gas prices spike in the U.S. due to the fast pandemic recovery and Russia's war on Ukraine. Because they hate America and the planet. House Democrats criticized the CEOs and Republicans for falsely blaming Biden administration policies while the oil companies sit on millions of acres of unused drill leases on public lands at the same time they're pulling in record profits. In earnings calls to investors in February, big oil CEOs admitted as much. Here are the CEOs of Pioneer Natural Resources, Diamondback Energy, and Occidental Resources. We're not going to change our growth rate. Uh, We think it's important to return cash back to the shareholders. No one wants to see that shareholder return program, you know, put at risk. We have no need and no intent to invest in production growth this year. They have no need to invest in production growth this year, even as the Republicans are yelling at Joe Biden for not expanding oil drilling. Give me a break, man. In the hearing on Wednesday, Democratic Representative Frank Pallone of New Jersey noted that oil companies decide the wholesale price of gas, which in turn sets retail prices. Pallone asked the CEOs of Chevron and BP if they would commit to any action to lower gas prices for American families. Will you commit to doing whatever it takes, including increasing production, but also reducing dividends and buybacks in order to lower prices for struggling Americans? American consumers. Yes or no? Mr. Chairman, we can increase production and okay. return value. All right. I'm going to take that as a no. Uh, Mr. Lawler? Yes or no? Yes, I, I can't commit. I can't commit to a reduction in buybacks. And All dividends. right. I hear you. 
Unbelievable. A new report from Bailout Watch confirms that big oil is using wartime profits to enrich investors, finding that the nation's biggest oil and gas companies significantly increased their shareholder dividends and stock buybacks after Russia invaded Ukraine. Progressive lawmakers in the hearing also pushed for accelerated investment in clean energy to reduce the nation's reliance on dictators and oil companies. In other news, in the wake of horrific evidence of probable war crimes committed by Russian troops against civilians in Ukraine, the European Union has proposed a total ban on imports of Russian coal. Good. But not yet imports of oil and gas. Europe gets about 45% of its coal from Russia, which is a major revenue source for Russia. A handful of EU countries have ruled out directly targeting Russian oil and gas. But tiny Lithuania is moving ahead anyway with a ban on Russian natural gas. Portugal announced this week it has moved up its target of reaching 80% clean electricity forward to 2026, four years earlier than previously planned. Also good. Here in the U.S., though, climate change impacts are already increasing costs. A new AP analysis of federal data shows that power outages from severe weather have doubled over the past two decades across the U.S. due to the increase in extreme weather driven by man-made global warming, which is crippling broad segments of the nation's aging electrical grid. AP found that at least 40 states now see longer outages, which are causing significant economic losses and can be deadly for the elderly, disabled, and other vulnerable communities. But finally, some good news. The Biden Environmental Protection Agency announced this week that it will finally ban deadly asbestos, a carcinogen that is still used in some products like brake pads and gaskets and still kills thousands of Americans every year. And it's still not banned? Nope. This final ban is made possible under a landmark law signed by President Obama that overhauled regulations governing tens of thousands of toxic chemicals. Well, good thing big oil can't turn a profit on asbestos. Profits over people and profits over our planet. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Shake your money maker. 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 Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yep. Uh, we got to get out. My thanks also to my guest today, Randall Lyson of George Washington University Law School, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And now we've got to shake our money maker. <laughs> our program is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Thank you. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Mm-hmm.